0: Hello, heroes. Welcome to Modifier. I'm your host, Megan Dornbrock. Hey there, heroes. Our sponsor is back this week, so first, a note from the Adventurer's Kit. Are you looking to up your game in a manner never before seen? Then head over to Kickstarter to back Tabletop Artisans and their new project, The Adventurer's Kit. It's an all-encompassing gaming accessory designed to carry everything a player would need to play a tabletop RPG, and it doubles as a playing area. Visit TabletopArtisans.com for more information, and see them on Kickstarter to see for yourself. And if you didn't already see it, James has a nice video up on Periscope where he looks at a prototype of this kit, and it's pretty neat. This week's episode is about a different kit. I got to talk with Jeremy Holcomb and Jeff Tidbull, who are creating The White Box, a game design workshop in a box, which is currently on Kickstarter. It's a great idea for burgeoning game designers, as it comes with a book of helpful essays and a selection of game bits you might want for a prototype. Heroes, the audio gremlins were out in full force for this one. We recorded twice, with a uh, various percentage of audio uh, each time ending up retrievable. <laughs> However, Jeff and Jeremy were a treat to chat with, and absolute troopers for hanging in there. I think I've pieced together a pretty coherent show for you guys. So let's get to it. I am joined this week by Jeremy Holcomb and Jeff Tidbull to talk about The White Box, which is a project that they have currently on Kickstarter. It's a game design workshop in a box. So uh, before we start, uh, why don't the two of you introduce yourselves a little bit, what you've been doing, uh, where we might know you from?
1: Sure. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, my name is Jeremy Holcomb. I've been making board games and card games for ages now. I worked on Anachronism for the History Channel. I've done some work for Alderac Entertainment group. I've made a number of board games. I'm probably best known for the Duke. Um, I also self, mm-hmm. self-published a number of titles via Bucephalus Games here in Seattle. Um, And I now teach game design. I teach at DigiPen Institute of Technology here in the Pacific Northwest and train a new generation of people who are going to grow up and make video games.
0: Excellent. And Jeff, how about you? I uh,
2: played Dungeons & Dragons in sixth grade and decided (laughs) it was the very greatest thing ever. And by seventh grade had decided that I was going to make games for a living And so kind of focused on doing that. There was no way to get training in that at the time. So I have a bog-standard English degree from a small liberal arts college and was lucky enough to manage to find a part-time job working at Atlas Games even before college was over. So I kind of wormed my way in uh, and just did more and more uh, design and marketing and PR and attending conventions and all of the nonsense related to publishing tabletop games and discovered through a lot of that that I was at least as good at or maybe better at doing the the publishing and producing tasks of game publishing than the design tasks and so I've done a lot of design but I've also done a lot of work um developing games and lining up publishing and running around warehouses, packing boxes and organizing things at conventions and hiring artists and just every single piece of business that's got to be done to get a game out. And, you know, for for 20-some years now, uh, I've been inside Atlas Games three different times. I'm the chief operating officer there right now, but also have a game playwright with Will Hindmarch where we do nonfiction uh, yeah. books and now game kits about, uh, about games and about game design and, and talking about games and all, all game-like things. That's awesome.
0: Are either of you surprised that teaching game design is a job now? Like, how does that become a, a life path, I guess? Because the, the white box is also about sort of teaching how to make games too, so. Oh, very much so.
1: No, I, I got this job by playing poker, actually, um... <laughs> With the whole industry, is it's networking, it's knowing people, yeah. and it's really being passionate about putting stuff out into the world, right? The, the real purpose of the white box is to help people who have an idea but don't really know how to move forward with it or are concerned about, well, is this the, is this the best way to do this? Is this the right way to do this? And to, to give people the tools to actually get
2: the ideas out of their head and onto the table. I think I was maybe surprised about that once but it was a long time ago now. (laughs) I took a break from the game business in 2000 because it looked like there would be no more tabletop games when World of Warcraft first got giant, right? Everybody thought that that was just over. And so I looked around and I was like, well, I have some creative skills. Is anyone else making money doing that? And so I went to film school, uh, and one of the things that became clear as I learned about screenwriting is that there were lots of people teaching other people to do screenwriting as, you know, if not a job, there were lots of workshops and there were lots of conventions and conferences where you could go to learn that stuff. And I think that filmmaking and screenwriting and novel writing and other forms of writing have had this sort of cottage industry around teaching other people to do that. And so when I think about it in that context, it is less surprising to me that now Mm. there are people with that same interest in creating things that maybe dream of doing that as a job, or maybe they just don't care about doing that as a job. Maybe they've got literally one game idea that they would really like to see come out into the world, but they don't have any idea how to do that because They are uh, an elementary teacher or they are an insurance salesperson or they are whatever kind of actual job that they have that they use to support themselves. Those skills are not, strictly speaking, the game design skills. There's lots more that they have to learn in order to get that game idea out of their head. But And so those of us who are interested in games deeply and who are also interested in helping other people get games out, uh, because we just yeah. love games, that it, it is really very natural, even if it is surprising.
0: Awesome. and And it sounds like that's exactly what you're working on with this project, is helping those types of people get that game out onto the table. So... The White Box itself is sort of two halves. Uh, there's the book of essays and there's a bunch of bits. Now, I'd like to talk about the book of essays first. Sure. It sounds like that's it's in the same vein as what you do in your day job. Um, so how did... Ha, what inspired you, I guess, to come home and then distill that into several essays?
1: Yeah, I've actually been working on the White Box longer than I've been teaching. Um, it, all, oh, okay. it all came from... Um, you know, when you when you make some games and you, you get out there, people start asking you to come to conventions, uh, you know, GameStorm, Gen Con, and, and help out and meet, do meet and greets with new designers and do panels and uh, and help people make games. And, of course, I'm very passionate about teaching. Obviously, that's what I do. But I'm also passionate about mm-hmm. other people making great games because I want to play them. Um, it's a very very mm-hmm. enlightened self-interest. Um, but you you do those panels, and what I discovered was the same questions come up every time, right? And I remember when I was first doing this stuff, and I, I didn't have a resource like this, but I made a bunch of mistakes and made a bunch of assumptions and did a bunch of stuff wrong. Um, and I heard the questions coming up over and over again. I'm like, oh, that's really interesting. Let me help you with that. Oh, that's really interesting. Let me help you with that. And like the third time, you, you go, wait a minute. Like... I I, sh- I don't need to help each of you individually. There there should be a resource for this. Somebody should put together a sort of best practices list or suggestions on different ways to think about this stuff, different ways to move forward. And this is how foolish I am. Scope is always the problem. My plan was I'll write a little pamphlet. That's what I told myself. I'll write a couple of things down just as a guide, and I'll add that, and that'll be the the you know it'll come alongside all of the useful bits. But it'll just be a couple of tips. For how to do this stuff, and that has evolved into a very large book about how to do this stuff.
0: So, how large is
1: very large? (laughs) Uh, Obviously, it'll depend on a number of things. It's it's about one hundred and twenty six pages now. I want to say, and actually, one of the we we the Kickstarter went very well. We funded very quickly, and so we've been able to add some some Mm -hmm. goals that weren't there originally to. Uh, add some additional essays from other designers and other people in the design field about elements that they specialize in. Where I, you know, I, I talk about it in some cases, but they're really that's what they do. Um, and I'm very excited to be working with some some very bright minds to put put together some additional content.
0: Cool. What What are some of the topics that the essays cover? The ones that you've written and the uh, the contributors? Uh,
1: sure. Um, all kinds of stuff. Everything from the idea to the customer to from the idea to the player. Um, so we talk about playtesting and, and how to do playtesting effectively, how that's different than playing games. We talk about how to elicit useful feedback from playtesters. And I provide some warnings on things that a lot of designers do that kind of shut feedback down um, and that you want to avoid. Uh, we talk about the production process. So if you want to, to, to self-publish a game, here are some tips on how to do that. And really kind of some suggestions on how not to do it actually i almost want to talk people out of self publishing um <laughs> i i did it and it's super dangerous right there's lots of ways for that to go go badly and lots of upsides to working with publishers and there's lots of upsides to working with sure. with uh, self publishing so it really all starts with why are you here right what do you want to be what do you want out of this game that's the very first essay and everything flows from that
2: one of the things that i told people when I was teaching design and production workshops at Gen Con is that I think it's absolutely crucial to come to the process knowing what it is you want to do and what it is you want to get out of it. Does that make sense? Like, if you don't come to the process knowing that you want to be the designer of the game, you can wind up spending lots of time doing things that aren't designed. But if you're clear that that's what you're super interested in doing, you can tailor your experience to do mostly or entirely that. Uh, So, so man, I think that that is crucial in life, I suppose, to know what you want and to try to get that. But it it also applies to this microcosm of life that is game design.
0: Absolutely. And it sounds like, from what Jeremy was saying, that uh, a lot of these essays kind of can help people figure that out, you know, give them some, some upfront information.
1: Oh, and you asked about um, some of the, some of the essays that other people are contributing. I've talked a little bit about, um, about accessibility in games. I want to talk about uh, the story of games and how the, the physical bits and the terminology we use and just the headspace that we design in can be more or less inclusive and that we as designers get a bigger audience and get better, better games if we're thinking about um, who our actual players are and what their needs are. And that has, uh, I'm very pleased, sparked a conversation amongst many members of the, the game design community. And a lot of people who can speak at it from angles that I can't are coming in to provide some additional content.
0: Excellent. I'm really looking forward to that. So uh, on the show, we talk a lot about role-playing tabletop games, but White Box is geared towards like board games, tabletop, games with bits, games with pieces. You can have this this kit. The essays in the book, do you think that those are applicable to people who are working on RPGs?
2: Jeremy, why don't you feel that first? Yeah, absolutely. Many of them.
1: The purpose of the essays is really to be kind of a choose-your-own-adventure book. Where it's not read this cover to cover, it's what do you want out of this, and then, okay, here is the path for how these essays will help you, and here are some essays that are probably less applicable to you. So, yeah, I mean, some of the elements of how to use meeples or tokens or, or, or cards might be less useful, but we talk a lot about gamist versus narrative design, which I think is a very RPG um, concept and the knowing what kinds of role-playing games you want, what, you, what decisions you want your players to make. We talk a lot about uh, kind of what interesting decisions are and how they're constructed, and that's very applicable. Um, and certainly all of the self-publishing content, um, it's actually substantially easier to self-publish a role-playing game than it is to self-publish a board game because you don't have to deal with the bits And so the self-publishing stuff might be more applicable in terms of like, just what is a UPC and how does that work? How does the distribution work? How do you deal with moving products through customs? How do you do, what does an art budget look like? How do you, all of those elements are going to be very applicable to self-publishing
2: RPGs. And also, for example, there's an essay about whether it is sensible to hoard your ideas on your desk and in your computer and not tell anyone about your interesting, innovative idea because they will steal it from you. And that applies equally. And... And, and obviously I'm being, I guess, sarcastic there because that is a very bad idea. What you really want to do if you want to publish a thing is tell as many people as will stop moving long enough to hear it about your idea because that's the key way that you improve it and that you spread the word about it so people who think that that sounds great will play test it or buy it or play it or tell other people about it. And so those kinds of lessons apply, frankly, even more broadly than games, but certainly they apply to role-playing games as much or more than they do to board and card and so on.
0: Awesome. Thank you. I think that's going to uh, help a lot of people who are curious about that one. And I, I ask, too, because I know there is a, a level where you can get just the, the essays, right, in the on the Kickstarter?
2: There is. Just the essays in, in digital form. The, the physical book is not offered outside of the box. But so in addition to getting just the digital version of the white box essays, there's also a digital level where you can get that digital version, plus things we think about games in digital format, plus The Bones, us and our dice in digital format. So um, those even, like The Bones, I think, would be very interesting to role players because it is all about our obsessions with dice and our weird stories about them and why dice are interesting. So that like the essay that I wrote in The Bones is all about this guy, my friend Donnie, who ran a Rollmaster campaign that I played in when I was in middle school and high school, and it is about this set of percentile dice that he hand-machined out of metal, which he gave to me, actually, after we published that essay. But it's it's not really about the machining of those dice. That essay is about my experiences playing Rollmaster with this bunch of people uh, in the mid... No, the early '90s. No, the late '80s. Ha ha ha! I'm old. Um, but but so those those things may be interesting to role players also if they're checking out the campaign, but they are not certain whether they need to own more cubes.
0: Awesome. But speaking of the cubes, there's a lot of bits in this box. If you get the physical box, all kinds of bits. So how do you decide what bits to put in this box?
1: So we went back and forth on a large number of things that could be included, and our overall goal is what gives people things that they can use to start the process for as many different types of games as possible. Certainly people are going to want to add stuff to this, they're going to want to modify it, but how do I provide you a resource to start getting your ideas out there and testing it, and how do I provide bits that are actually of value to you and not sell you things that you either already have or that you can get more efficiently in some other way. So the the bits contain, like, a lot of different colors of meeples and cubes and tokens, including some custom tokens that we did new art for for the white box, as well as some, some blanks that
2: you can use. And there were even some pieces that were proposed earlier to be included in the list that wound up either making the overall expense of the box higher than we felt people would want to, would want to pay or, or that it would be, we would like this to be a no-brainer back or purchase for someone who is interested in game design. And we talked to a bunch of game retailers and, and they were the ones who kind of proposed this $30 amount as something that would be an immediate purchase for someone who's interested in game design. But pushing past that, once that person who is interested starts to think about, well, could I maybe just buy some of this stuff at a craft store? That might be better. At that point, we have lost them. And so we wanted to make sure that it was something that a a interested person could feel immediately good about getting on board with. So some of the things that we didn't include are some of the things that, honestly, you would be better off just making out of stuff that you already have. So uh blank cards were one of the things that we talked about putting in there. But honestly, as someone who has designed lots of card games and prototyped lots of games that include cards, it is better for you to print them on office paper, cut that into nine sheets and sleeve the cards. It's faster for you to make them. It is faster for you to revise them as your prototype goes. The sleeved cards are easier to work with and will get destroyed less easily than pre-cut blank cards that you write on with markers or whatever. Like It's just better all the way around that we don't put that in the box and charge you for it.
0: So some of the things that do come in the box, like we're, we're talking about meeples and cubes and um, like little plastic chips and things like that, um, that that are yeah, they are very general, but aren't something you could go pick up at at the craft store.
2: Not super conveniently, and there are there are for sure places that you can order those things online, right? You can go to Print and Play or Spiel Pro or the Game Crafter and order cubes. Um, we're doing enough volume that honestly, you would pay about the same amount, but not get a book if you went and and purchased all of those things. That was one of the last steps of preparing the Kickstarter was to make sure that was true.
0: Was was there anything that you didn't get to add that you would have liked to?
2: That is a great question. Jeremy, do you have an answer for that? I would love to have put in sleeves,
1: um, and I would love to have put in baggies, actually, like lots of different sizes of of, of baggies of various different types because we just use so many of them. Um, and we priced that out, and basically that didn't come in. at something that made any sense. Um, we are looking at uh, boards. It's not cost-effective to put a board in the box, again, because everybody's game is going to be so different. So instead, we're looking at doing PDF designs of various different pre-built board layouts, and including that um, as something which is, hey, now you can just download this. And again, it's a starting point to go, oh, you may need to modify this down the road. But this just gives you something to print and play with and start testing your ideas.
0: Oh, that's awesome. And I, I know that there may be some some physical tools out there that people might be interested in. There's a couple designers I know that bring the um, the foldable wipe off boards with them. To, uh, to convention games. Have you have seen those? Yeah, yep. those that would be great yep. to go with this. Yeah, and that's the thing where
1: everybody's going to add different stuff, right? Like, I hope that if you decide that you really want to make a game about dragons, yeah. you're going to go get a bunch of plastic dragons and throw them in the white box along with other, all of the bits that I've supplied, and then your dragons will be eating the meeples that I have provided or whatever is appropriate for your process.
0: This combination of bits, uh, this this kit, is this something that you've had a chance to play test with people?
1: Yeah, quite a bit. I I took it to GameStorm. I've taken it to a number of events. I took it to Gamma um, and just put it in front of people, both to test the essays and kind of go, hey, what's here? What do you wish there was more of? Does this make sense to you? But also to test the components and go, OK, let's let's make a game. Let's give me an idea. Let's go somewhere with that. Here are the bits. Let's build something and actually constructed game concepts and built them to a first prototype level. Off of the components that we had, and that really helped me see spaces where I'm like, oh well, I wish I had you know more dice or a different color of token or different different bits, and that evolved into what we have in the box.
0: When you were working with these groups of people, did um, did the playtesters do anything that surprised you? Well, you always see people go off in different
1: directions. Yeah, I mean, the thing that's probably most relevant mm-hmm. uh, to to your audience is the number of people who immediately. B- Went to build role-playing games out of it, which surprised me just because (laughs) I'm sort of not from that world. That's, like, I've I've made a lot of board games, but um, I I haven't made a lot of role-playing games. And so seeing people where that's like, oh, that's what I love to play, so that's where I'm going to go with this. I'm just like, oh, of course, like, that's a natural progression of this, but I hadn't been expecting it until I saw it.
0: Oh, cool. They're just blurring the lines. That's awesome. So this sounds like uh, if there are game groups maybe that are eyeing this, considering this, this might be a, a nice group purchase.
2: Yeah, that would be super interesting. We've had also a couple of different convention organizers just make comments or get in touch or inquire about the idea of using these at design workshops or as an adjunct to seminars on game design at their events. As a, as a starting point, or or I guess as a, as a finishing point, right? Here is this seminar, or here is this discussion we've had. Now take this box and make a thing.
0: Very cool. Also about the, you know, what comes in the box, are you concerned at all that the, the pieces that are selected and, and curated for this kit are in any way uh, limiting, uh, and, and if so, does that matter?
1: Well, I, there's always a limitation of components in terms of just, you know, uh, there are only six colors of bits with all of the stretch goals, and so if you wanted an eight-player game, that might be something where you, you have to, to create something or acquire some additional bits to make that happen. Um, yeah, I mean, then in terms of is that limit good, is an eight-player game actually the correct thing for your play space? Maybe, maybe not. Um, but the whole idea is just to be a, a starter. I don't want anybody to go... Um, here's the, even if I was going to take the white box and go to a class or go to an event and go, hey, here's the bits, we're going to make something with what's in this box. If somebody then wants to lean across the table Mm -hmm. and grab the salt shaker and go, okay, here is the ivory tower, and we're all going to attack the ivory tower, that's great.
2: That sounds wonderful.
0: okay I
2: also think that your starting assumptions about anything inform so much of where it goes. Um, so, looking at something like the white box uh in America in a capitalist society suggests that you are going to build a product that will then be bought and sold or or it's it informs that right to a to a very large extent um The kinds of things that are in the box will certainly inform the kinds of games that will be designed imagine. Um, the idea of design a game, if you propose that idea to someone and hand them the white box, something wildly different will happen than if you say to someone, design a game and put them in a kitchen, right? They'll come back with a Food Network show if you put them in a kitchen. They'll come back with a board game if you hand them the white box. They'll come back with something to sell if they're in America. They will come back with I don't even know what they'll come back with in in some other completely different society at some completely different period in time. I mean, that's dangerously, wildly philosophical, but it's kind of interesting to think about how different a game could you produce the more assumptions you eliminate or the more assumptions that you add, right? So what what if a loaf of bread came inside the white box? What kinds of... Wild nonsense would people come back with that would, would be very interesting, I guess. Um, the other thing that I've been thinking a lot about just recently in the last couple days is uh, when somebody pointed out that the the base colors that the components come in, uh, some of them are a, are a color blindness disaster. So what what if anything do we do about that? Because on the one hand. For example, just to take a, to to take a very easy example, we could certainly choose different colors for the base components and make them more friendly, make it easier for people, uh, with different vision to tell them apart. But if we do that, then, it becomes more difficult for people who buy it to get more cubes of the same color. If they want to buy more cubes, they can go to Print and Play or Spiel Pro or the Game Crafter and get more red cubes and green cubes to match the cubes that they've already got. So, if their game needs more cubes than we provide, it's easier for them to expand it. But if we choose colors that do that are not commonly available for purchase, then it makes it more difficult for them to do that. So, what? Are, what are the limitations that we are placing on those opportunities just by what we're choosing to put into the box? Um, so yes, I guess that's, that's something that I've been thinking about in very concrete terms in the last week.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting point to bring up because I'm looking at the picture on the Kickstarter right now and the components appear to be the, the colors that we're pretty used to coming in a lot of board games, you know, red, blue, green, yellow. Um, you know, very standard component colors. Uh, so it's, I don't know. It's interesting to me that those are are what we default to uh, in the board games industry. I'm, I'm. I can think of a couple games off the, you know, offhand, but not many that deviate from that. And that just might be an industry issue.
2: Yeah. Well, for sure it is. And it also, <laughs> I don't know that I have ever worked on a game where the initial prototypes did not look wildly different from the games that were ultimately published. So on on early editions of the cards in a card game, you will have all kinds of wildly stupid layout decisions. Or not wildly stupid, but just they haven't been exposed to testing. You haven't figured out how you're going to change them. And so to a certain extent, your early prototypes on purpose do not look anything like what your final thing will be. So, in a prototyping tool, is it important to suggest that you must begin with colors that are as widely friendly as possible? It almost, like, at the early stages, if you get too obsessed with the very end product, you get paralyzed and you can't ever do anything. Um, and it, it just becomes a very difficult process of trying to figure out when you address different issues and concerns and like how can you do it. It's it's all uh fraught and difficult, but that is part of why it's fun also. Yay, life.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Man, design's stressful.
2: <laughs> we actually talked about that a fair bit here at Atlas recently. Cam Banks and I have been talking a lot about uh the early design stages of role playing games and the extent to which you should make your character sheets beautiful or usable or or if you should provide character sheets at all in early versions of a role playing game because that leads people in certain directions, is it better to give them a blank piece of paper and see what kinds of stuff they are writing down in response to elements of the game?
0: Oh, interesting. Actually, speaking of Atlas, I did want to ask one other thing that that jumped out at me. You mentioned Atlas games in the Kickstarter page, and there's a comment. Atlas got involved to make the white box more than a one-and-done flash-in-the-pan project. So what does that mean?
2: Yeah, I would love to answer that. So Game Playwright, uh, the three books that we have done so far, are all print-on-demand books that are mostly purchased either in digital form in, in places like Drive-Thru RPG or via Amazon Kindle Download. Uh, they can also be purchased from us physically. Those are all print-on-demand products, so we never have more than 50 copies of them in stock. The Game Playwright Warehouse is a single shelf of a bookcase in my office and we just print more when they're needed. So because of that, playwright does not have to be a larger company than it needs to be. It doesn't have capital requirements really at all, because we just spend money $200 at a time printing 50 more books. But that totally fails to work with something like the White Box, because it's necessary to print thousands of copies of that, because... There is not print on demand technology for cubes. so that was one of the things that we that we struggled with uh, I think literally for years is figuring out whether a Kickstarter could be big enough that game playwright could fund a run of thousands of white boxes, and if we did, how would my single bookshelf be made to be large enough to accommodate thousands of white boxes? And, like, how would we even do that? The only way, really, that that, that that could even be possible is if it all, like, happened all at once. You know, we successfully kickstarted for thousands of copies and then ordered very close to that amount and then shipped them all out, and then that was kind of it. Assuming that we were not going to have a warehouse or, or do all of those things. So what we wound up, what wound up happening in the meantime while we were thinking about all those things is that I came back to work at Atlas again and put together a deal with Atlas to distribute game playwrights existing books through existing distribution channels. So game stores can order things we think about games and the bones and Hamlet's hit points ...from their regular distributors like Alliance and ACD and PhD and so on. And so that Alliance, as we continued to talk about it, it it became sensible for Atlas to get involved with the production of the White Box on an even deeper level, because Atlas has a warehouse, and Atlas has a warehouse manager, and Atlas has all of these deep relationships that are 25 or 30 years old with all of these distributors. So it just then... Then the complication was just figuring out how to structure that deal. And the way that it wound up happening is that Game Playwright has funded kind of the production of all of these things, and then game playwright will continue to receive revenue from all of the digital portions of it. Atlas will pay to produce all of the physical things and will distribute those into the world and will collect that revenue to the Atlas side. And then both companies will continue to pay Jeremy over time as digital downloads are sold and as physical white boxes are sold and so that circles back around to your question. Atlas, because of the infrastructure that it has, is able to make this available until the end of time, essentially. I would really, really love to see the white box sold in retail stores 20 years from now, because I don't think that tabletop games are going away, and I don't think that people will stop being interested. So what Atlas brings to the table most importantly, from my perspective, is an existing infrastructure to make sure that the white box is available for years and years and years, because people are not going to stop being interested in game design 30 days after our Kickstarter is over.
0: So do you have any any future plans regarding the White Box once all this is done?
2: Well, I'm certainly excited to see how it will
1: get used by different communities, right? I know a number of schools who are looking at taking advantage of the program where they can buy actually bulk product, bulk what the White Box from, from Atlas directly. So there's a number of tools for scholastic use. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing it get used in, again, role-playing settings, board game settings. Um, And down the road, of course, there's lots of opportunities to do a second or third printing where we're like, okay, well, what can we add to these essays? How have things changed? Um, I think, for example, the the line between analog games and digital games is starting to blur and you're seeing more digital games like Hearthstone that build off a theoretically real world product. You're seeing more games like uh, XCOM that are that are incorporating digital principles. Uh, like their uh, method of keeping track of time. Um, And so the new version, as game design evolves, uh, the white box hopefully will evolve alongside it.
0: And then the Kickstarter, which, uh, when this episode goes out, will be a little over halfway done, I think. or We're kind of at the halfway point now, I think, right? So, and it, it is funded, which is awesome. So there is still time for folks to get in on this. Um, what should we know about the campaign? Yeah, the
2: campaign will run through uh, Wednesday, May 17th. The best way to find it is to go to Kickstarter and type the white box in the search box but you can also find it at gameplaywright.net slash the white box. There's a forward there. Uh, be alert that game playwright is spelled like the word game and then like playwright as in a person who writes plays.
1: So there's a, uh, there's a number of different ways that it, it'll be appropriate to different people, right? There's the, the base version. You can just buy the, the PDF of the essays and get all of the information um, delivered to your door, as it were. Uh, you can also pick up the full white box, which contains all, all of the bits as well as the essays. And actually, um, working with Gameplaywright is amazing for a lot of reasons. One of which is they've talked about the process of making games many times before, and there are, um, higher levels pledges that get you PDF copies or printed copies of all of their back catalog of existing games, um, uh, talking about dice and about the structure of how games work, talking about the game design process, and there again, more ways to think about how you're making games, why you're making games, what the purpose of all this is, um, and those are really valuable add-ons that, that are um, quite frankly uh, cheap.
0: Is there anything else that we you want to make sure we touch on about the the white box?
1: Well, the last stretch goal we've got is actually the retail backer stretch goal. We, uh, you know, I've I've run retail game stores before. I think. I think friendly local game stores are really the backbone of uh, both the, the board game and role-playing industry, right? We need these these things to function um, in order for us to find players and find great new games. So I would encourage you to reach out to your friendly local game store and have them take advantage of the various programs. If we get uh, enough retail backers, we will be able to add uh, a whole other set of meeples, a whole other color of, of tokens and bits, so that everybody has more stuff to make games with.
0: Yay, more bits.
1: more bits.
0: All right, well, uh, those links will be in the show notes for everybody to go and claim their bits, and uh, that just leaves where can we find you two on the internet? And we'll put those links in the show notes as well.
2: Uh, You can find me online at jefftidball.com. That's where my blog and random things are found. Atlas Games is online at atlas-games.com. There's a blog and a catalog of like a hundred different Projects going back over 30 years. Uh, if you're familiar with Gloom or Once Upon a Time, those are atlases to uh, kind of evergreen titles, although we're making more all the time. You can find GameplayWrite online at GameplayWrite.net. That's Playwright with a W, and it's all smashed together into one word. Um, but you can also find all the GameplayWrite stuff on Amazon and on DriveThru RPG. Uh, Retailers can buy all of the gameplay right stuff and stock it through distribution, and it's also available at Indie Press Revolution, which is an awesome place for stores to find all kinds of games that otherwise have a hard time making it into widespread distribution, but that people will be extremely enthusiastic to see in a store. It, it lends a lot of credibility, I think to stores when they have stuff that a gamer has never seen before. And IPR is a great place
0: to find that stuff. Awesome. And where can we find you, Jeremy?
1: Uh, I am available at jeremy.holcomb at digipen.eu. Uh, that is my professorial email. Um, you can also find me at virtually every major convention. Um, and I would be thrilled to play games. My personal quest is to play every game at least once. So if you've got something you want to show off, I'd love to see it.
0: Oh, boy. That's intense.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, we've all got to have quests we can't can't accomplish.
0: I, I like it. That's a good one. Thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. For doing it twice now.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, I really appreciate uh, having the opportunity to talk about the white box.
0: Thank you,
2: Megan. It has been great.
0: Enormous thanks again to Jeremy and Jeff for doing this episode. And you can find all their links in the show notes. If you're a white box backer and you make something with it, let me know. I'm always curious how this stuff gets used in the wild. That's it for this week, heroes. You can find Modifier on Twitter at ModifierPodcast or at the headquarters at ModifierPodcast.tumblr.com. You can send comments, questions, or contribution suggestions to ModifierPodcast at gmail.com. If you like the show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes as that helps more people find us. Modifier is a proud member of the OneShot Podcast Network, an amazing family of RPG podcasts that includes incredible shows like OneShot, Campaign, Backstory, and Talking Tabletop. Modifier's theme music was created by my favorite Bothan, Cat Greenfield, whose myriad talents are on display at catgreenfield.com. Join me again in two weeks for another episode of Modifier. See you then.